0: Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Technology, where we discuss the technology news that's important to you from a uniquely Catholic point of view. And joining me today on the panel are Father Joseph Sund. Hey, Father. Good to be with you. And Father Cory Stika. Hey, Father. How's it going, Dom? Very good, thanks. Folks, I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network that you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Middle-Earth. And you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash middle earth. So our topic this week is, uh, is very Catholic one, shall we say? Uh, (laughs) We don't always get deep into Catholic technology subjects, but this time we're tackling it. And I've got uh, two experts here to help me with this uh, because they are deeply involved in this area of church technology. And this is parish management software. And, uh, you know, for, po- folks might not be aware that uh, parishes have a lot of the same technology needs that a small business does. They need to have, you know, bookkeeping software, and they have, you know, computer networks and phone systems and all this sort of stuff. But there are particular needs that a parish will have, in that is served by parish management software. Now, what would you say as a description, Father Corey? I'll start
1: with you the parish management software is well, it, it's the, 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 the tools that we use to, for tracking for things, of course, accounting, you know, that's, that's a big one people can think of, but like our family tracking, you know, we, we keep track of the families that we have in the parish and how much they've given and all those kind of things. Um, sometimes it's other, there's, sometimes there's other areas like schools and stuff like that, have their own needs and stuff like that. Um, so it, cause basically a parish is a combination of a business, a charity, a nonprofit all rolled in one, right? you know, (laughs) and we have the needs of all three
0: at a club. It's almost like a a club. It's aspects. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: How about you, father Joseph, anything you'd add to that? I think that it's about organization and especially myself. I'm in an area that, and this is more and more of the Catholic world, especially in the heartland that multiple parishes that me being able to have data at my hands and information at my hands um, allows me to know my people better. Mm -hmm. And so at the heart of this, like the thing that makes me different from a business is at the heart of this, isn't the bottom line, Mm -hmm. right? At the heart of this is salvation, (laughs) Right? right? And so it's And so at the very heart of this is my ability to know my people. And that highly depends on data and accurate data. I can't find my people at PO boxes. I need to know their street addresses, right? Mm -hmm. I need to know phone numbers. I need to know emails. I need to know which Catholics are married to non-Catholics. And maybe there's potential RCIA there. I need to know all of those different things Mm -hmm. And that is what that software is meant to manage. um, And the better ones are able to bring all that in and focus on a person.
0: That's a, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Because parishes are really about relationships and relationship Mm -hmm. between the family and the parish relationships within families, uh, relationships of say kids with religious education, religious formation, uh, sacraments, all that sort of stuff is, has to be tracked. And it's, that's a complex problem because there are, you know, as we would say, it's, that's a, uh, relational database, you know, web. There's so many connections that one individual makes with a parish in so many different directions.
2: And back in the, and back in the day when, you know, when one parish that had, Two hundred families, and there's just a priest in charge of it. It's very possible for me to inside my head and inside my relationships thoroughly know those people and know the intricacies between them, especially when you have priests that were assigned there for twenty years and le- live there. But once you are serving a larger area, you need data,
1: <laughs> right? Well, in, in even in smaller parishes, I'm, in, I'm, you know, in very small parishes. Um, you know, my Sunday attendance at one parish is about 50 people and another parish is 30 people. I mean, very small parishes. Yep. And there's still very much a need for these kind of resources in in this kind of assignment. Um, and, 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 you know, a lot of parish records are still the old books. You know, you, you look at your sacramental records, parishes still are required to maintain books. Now, we can put a lot of this stuff on computer in a management software, but we still have to have the books. The advantage of the management software is. When someone calls looking for the baptismal record, it's a lot easier if that's been transferred into the computer to punch up their name that way than it is to flip through. Okay, that's your. That was in 1980, and here's the
2: book from 1980 to 1986, and we flip through and we, you know, things like that. Well, and also the fact that for some of my books, I I did digitize all my books at Good. one point, so I, um, outside of the parish management system, can pull it up. But ordinarily. Uh, those books also need to be kept at the grounds of that parish. Yep. And so I get called about a record. My furthest parish is 55 miles away. Mm. And so I might have to get in the car for an hour. Right. right. And so we're, ta- we're, we're talking some practical things there as yeah. well.
1: Right. And I, nice thing here is we're required to keep them at the cluster parish. But the same same thing, same situation, situation still applies. OK, which book is which and where can I find it? And it, it does get to be a mess especially right. if those records aren't quite as well kept as they should be.
0: And yeah, and people misremember. They think they oh, um, yeah, they were baptized in 1981. No, it was actually 1982 and you've just paged through the 1981 book page by page mm-hmm. by page until you realize it's not in there and where it's digitized you just look up a name and there's the information. So all this sort of stuff is is really one helpful more thing about.
2: Yeah. One more thing about the sacramental records really hit on this thing about the difference between Catholic churches and other churches. Mm -hmm. Our records are kept very well. The number of times I get phone calls for ancestry stuff and we're the only ones left that have records of people who were living in the 1800s, right? And the United States government sometimes doesn't even have those records. So The managing of information and data is really a very Catholic thing. And it's um, because of this incarnational reality of the church. The church is about people. The church is about Christ becoming man. And so there's this importance of the sacraments being recorded and all of that that's at the heart of a lot of our Catholic.
0: You know, you think about it. This is a little bit of a tangent apart from the most important people who show up in history books we don't have records really of anybody the billions of people who have lived in this in this world mm-hmm. except for the the things we like the the, the gravestones that wear out mm-hmm. and the the sacramental records that we've kept now we really have better records in the last century overall mm-hmm. but apart from that it's the church's records and like you can go to ireland people go to ireland they go to italy they go to france and they go to the churches where their ancestors came from and they find the sacramental record for yep. someone in the 17th century, you know, that an ancestor, uh, that's the sort of thing now that's was done in these books that were preserved, hopefully. Right. <laughs> but what we're doing now is creating these electronic records to make all of this easier on everyone and, you know, preserving this information, um, For now, but also for posterity, which is, I think, both are important things. So Mm -hmm. let's get into the software itself and talk about the different software packages that parishes will need. And this is, you know, a lot of parishes will know this stuff, they'll use this stuff, but some might not. And they might hear uh, something that they might want to investigate. Also, as a layperson, I think it's important to understand what the, especially if you're a techie, like most listeners to this program will be, these are areas where you might be able to serve your parish. Help them uh, by volunteering your skills to manage some of this stuff uh, for your know, for your parish. So you know, talk to your pastor and let them mm-hmm. know you're available. Um, but let's you know start with some categories. One of the big things is communications. That's I I used to work as a director of communications for a parish uh, collaborative. We call them in, in Boston. It, uh, it was a collaborative of three parishes, and I worked at the diocesan level in communications as well. Communication to me, communications is evangelization. Right. Mm-hmm. We are we we bring the word to people and that's communication. Right. So <laughs> uh, at its fundamental level, it's important that a parish be able to communicate with people. And we have many tools for that. Uh, but email today is one of the most important tools we use. What do you do? You, do you all use email
2: as a way to communicate with your parish? Yeah, we use email um, and it's important in a world filled with spam. Mm-hmm. That you use a reputable news letter service provider because gone are the days that I can put my entire parish in the two field. Right. By the way, if you do that, please stop now. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> um, that is the way to um, compromise every single person's account on that list. Yeah.
0: Well, and then someone will reply all, and then it's just yeah. disaster. Oh, get, oh <laughs> my god! Reply <goodness>. all storms. <laughs>
2: And so there's, I know there's some parishes will use some of the secular solutions. So there's like MailChimp, I think. And there's a lot of other services for email things, which is fine. I know in the Archdiocese of Omaha, the Archdiocese themselves invested in using Flocknote, um, which is more of a
0: church grade. It's aimed
2: Mm -hmm. at churches. I like it. Um, That also deals with um, sending out text messages. Um, My use case most of the time for it is to be able to send. I'm fine texting one-on-one from my business line with adults. But when it comes to safe environment things, and um, we've talked about a lot of my work is with high schoolers. um, Mm. I will always use Flocknote when I am sending group text to groups of kids because it's put on a platform that the whole organization sees so th- there's a dual purpose of that as well
0: I want to mention about flocknote the thing that I like about it and uh flocknote they they're the founders there are friends of sqpn we we go way back um mm-hmm. you know to early days of the of the network uh, and one of the things I love about it is the recipient decides how they want to receive the information. And so the individual parishioner can say, I want to get an email or I want to get a text message or, you know, I, I don't think you can get stuff in the mail. But, you know, those two, those are the two main ways of getting information. And then you can break it down within the parish to religious ed groups, youth group, you know, various Groups within the parish, St. Vincent de Paul can have their own, you know, section. And then Mm -hmm. Flocknote also provides uh, prepackaged content that parishes can use in their newsletters. And that's something what we've contributed here at StarQuest. They have um, a library of prepackaged information um, from American Catholic history. The podcast, where you know, their brief write-ups on you know interesting people from American Catholic history that they can use in their newsletters or in their bulletins, and so I really enjoy like that. They've also in the recent years incorporated uh, more of the people management stuff that some of the other packages mm-hmm. had, as well as some. Um, uh, online giving sort of things, yep. uh, uh, offerings. Mm-hmm. So the, to to really, you know, and that's what the three things you're often going to find in this parish management software is people management, communication and offertory. Those are yep. those are the three big areas. Yeah. So Flocknote, uh, they often I think a lot of some dioceses will sign up and then their parishes will get access to it. From that, individual parishes can sign up. They do things mm-hmm. like um, you can create sign-up forms. So all this sort of thing is available piecemeal out there. You, there's like Sign Up Genius and stuff like that. But all but for them, it's all integrated. Even like event registration and ticket sales, it's all can mm-hmm. be integrated into it. Which is it just makes it nice and easy. You don't have to figure out a bunch of different packages and all that sort of stuff. It's all in one place. So I really like that about Flocknote.
2: Yeah, one of my favorite things about The difference between just sending out a regular email and using Flocknote, because there's content embedded in it, right? it's going to load images from Flocknote. And Mm -hmm. so Flocknote is able to tell me when people have opened emails, which might be a little creepy. But I know that my emails have reached its destination. And so what happens then is if repeatedly that email never gets read, I will get notifications on there that this might be a bad email address Mm -hmm. Um, right and so it also helps me to know the accuracy of my information and I'll get on to that there's other things built into other parish management systems about accuracy of information that we can get to but that's um, if I don't have accurate information it's worse than not having information
1: you know, it, it's funny is parishes for a long time, especially more rural parishes will have uh, phone trees. Yeah, where they, you know, one person <laughs> calls three <laughs> people and that person calls three and so on and so on down the line. And we still do we still do a lot with that. Um, we have been getting more into actually uh, one of our parishioners uses what's called team reach. And it's more for like sports teams is what's really designed for. But it works really great because it gives you can do a group, which is the parish and then do basically chat, and anybody who's got a smartphone, Android or iOS, can use this this app, and it works really, really well for us because we are a smaller pair. There's not as much going on, but we can get messages out quickly. Um, and there, it's I think it's actually a bigger sell, easier sell for something like this, where it's they can control whether or not they look at it, they can control you know if it's on their phone or not, than it is like with email. One one problem I have is. I hate to say it, but older parishioners who they might have an email address, and, and I would argue that all but maybe one or two of my parishioners actually have an email address, but they, they view their email address as something private. You don't give out, you know, because they, they mm-hmm. heard, you know, with issues of spam and phishing and stuff like that, they got the wrong message. It wasn't, you only give out your email address to trusted people. So you don't give out your email address, except to like your family and those who really want to email you. And so it's really hard to get some of these parishioners to say no. Give me your, you know, I I won't abuse your email address. I won't sell your email address. I just I need it because if I need to get a hold of you because let's say a blizzard just moved in and there's not going to be mass, this is something you know check your email to see if there's a message from me saying I can't make it
2: because there's a ten foot snowdrift in the way <laughs> kind of thing, you know. Yeah, what one thing that's changed in rural communities especially is. The local radio station used to be the way that you got things mm-hmm. out. Yep. less and less small communities have their own radio station anymore it's yep. the internet's kind of brought that by the way of the wayside and so that's not the way um they communicate things. One thing that I forgot to put on here of the um obvious parish communication I still say that our main mode and the way that we reach the most amount of people in our parish is a wonderful Catholic product called Facebook. <laughs> mm. Right. It, that's just the reality. That's yeah. where we reach people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true about the, the radio radio stations, by the way, because, you know, I was in a town before this that had a local radio station that would do that. They would announce if there was any cancellations or anything like that. But even if a town has a radio station, so many radio stations now terrestrial radio stations, their services are provided elsewhere. You know, so they use basically a satellite service to provide all their music, all their DJ. And you can usually tell when they do because they never, the DJs never talk about anything local. It's always generic. Yeah. When you find a radio station that is broadcast local, like there's one still down in Helena, Montana that I can pick up here that is broadcast out of Helena because they're actually talking about events and things going on in Helena. You know, but... um. A lot of radio stations, these small town radio stations, it's easier just to set up a a receiver for their you know internet or satellite stream and then broadcast straight off from that. Right. So you can't get local cancellations on those stations, unfortunately.
0: You know the you mentioning the 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 best way the parishes communicate and Facebook is okay. Um, a lot of people use it, but be, Facebook has its algorithm, and sometimes. <laughs> he, mm-hmm you don't people don't see things but for a long time and it might still be the case the number one communication tool for parishes to, commu- to communicate with parishioners is the bulletin yes um, that little piece of paper or sheets of paper you pick up on your way out of church uh that has that they read from the hope it at the end mm-hmm. of mass <laughs> anyway yeah
1: no i don't know no <laughs> no no <laughs> never my never. Said, no, no. like I, I that's one one change i need to make here is that they don't they they still pass out the bulletins at the beginning of mass and i need to make sure that it's done at the end of mass
2: when i so, say you know, the but, mass is ended the mass is ended yeah <laughs> no announcements no um, announcements yeah,
1: i i try to watch that too but uh, no the bulletins very important and i i think that's something we we've forgotten because we do, we don't take the bulletin seriously enough to make it visually attractive, to make it, you know, informative, make it easy to read. I, I hate to say it. I know they're so common. I hate the bulletin services where you know you have to have the bulletin done by Monday because then they print and ship it to you. Right. I've never seen any of them that really look good where the actual announcements are. It I, always seems crammed and little boxes, not very well. Little boxes, and yeah. it's hard to read. Unless you've got good eyesight, eye, I make my own bulletin. So my it actually bull- just took yeah. over bulletin.
2: My bulletin editor retired in February, and i just spent the last six months um, being the interim bulletin editor. Yep. And so, which I did a f- which was the thing yeah. of like finally <laughs> I got to take care of all my pet peeves. Yep. <laughs> But now we just brought on um, new communication and bulletin editors. So Good. actually, all of this information is stuff that I'm in the middle of training two new ladies yeah. how to do right now. Well, so. I just
1: I just I just took over the bulletin. My first task was and I did this in, in my previous assignment as well is revamp it. And what I went from is, you know, just basically a single sheet of, you know, eight, eight and half by 11 paper to like a, a legal eight and a half by 14 folded in half. Right. And it gives you a little more room. But also it makes it more like a booklet. You know, you can do a little more, yep. you can be a little more flexible with the layout of it, and make it more like a newsletter than just a piece of paper.
2: There's, there's a thing with bulletins. And if you work in churches, please listen with an open heart here, especially with my elderly, the number of times I have heard how overwhelming it is mm-hmm. to get a bulletin that is six pages long, Yeah, like four pages max. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. say what's important, we don't need every detail, and you can use your bulletin as the avenue to lead them to your website or right. to the other places for that information. It's the entry-level thing.
0: Let's let's use that as an opportunity to, to talk about websites and website services, because mm-hmm. websites are important. Again, when I worked for the Archdiocese of Boston, one of my jobs was to help parishes Build websites, and in 2013, we did a. Early in that 2008, 2009, we did a survey of the several hundred parishes in the archdiocese and their websites, and we found that a third had no website at all. This was in 2008, 2009, that which is ridiculous. A third had a website that was badly out of date or just terrible in Mm -hmm. many, so many ways, and about a third had a decent website, and very there were maybe one or two that I'd say had a good website. And when I say a good website, how do what what makes a good web, a good parish website? When when you go to the website as a non-parishioner, say, someone visiting, someone mm-hmm. new, you understand what they're talking about. <laughs> and let me yeah. let me give you an example. When my parish when my family was looking we were looking for a new parish to go to. I, you know when we were moving in this area, I went to so many websites and they said things like mass will be in the Jones Hall or the Joseph Hall. Uh, and had no indication where that yeah. was. Like,
1: <laughs> uh, it, that's well, nice if I'm a parishioner, but I don't know that, you know. Well, let's let's start with a very basic thing. 90% of people who are coming from outside the parish that are looking at your website, there's two things they want to know. Where are you <laughs> and what time are the sacraments? Yes. And those need to be the top of the fold, so to speak. Those need to be at the top of your page, very clearly delineated. They don't need to know your mission statement, which, by the way, all parish mission statements should be go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's just, that's my pet peeve. No, it needs to be that kind of information, maybe a picture of your building. That's great. So that people know what your building looks like. Right. Because some
2: parishes, it's hard to tell. That takes six pages for me to have pictures of my building. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no it's it's it needs to be very simple
1: and then you add all the other stuff of here's what's going on with youth group and here's our you know here's our staff and those are other pages in the menu and everything like that and but it should be very simple
0: and then you could take all that same masthead type of data out of your bulletin cuz you don't need to list on your mm-hmm. bulletin every week who the pastor is and the deacon and the business manager, and that does you just put your website for
2: all this information. Go to our website. The only people who cared about that I pulled the staff listing out of the bulletin <laughs> well, was the staff, the, the was staff, there. right? <laughs> yep. And I put at the top for complete staff listing, please see cppnebraska.org/slash staff, right? Yep, and it was just that and that simple. And then they go and they go, Oh, there's the staff listing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and it's, it's, it, again, it, if your website website's set up, well, it allows you to put a lot of the announcements that you would be tempted to put in the bulletin, say things for like a month or two or three out. Instead, you can have them on the website, things that, you know, things that doesn't need to go to the whole parish and aren't immediate concern.
0: So, um. Uh- there are, you, you can build a website yourself. There are lots of website services out there that, you know, people use Wix and whatever, and, or Squarespace. Mm-hmm. But there are also uh, services dedicated to providing websites for parishes. Uh, eCatholic is a great one. And they're another one of these uh, smaller companies that have come along that are really innovative. And uh, eCatholic. Well, they have relationships with some diocese. Will they go to the diocese and diocese will pay to have every parish have an eCatholic website uh, just to make sure that they have, you know, a decent website and they'll provide a template. And, you know, the parish just provides the information that gets it going. Um, but eCatholic is, is, is a great one. Um, Our Sunday Visitor had a one that actually I worked with them helping develop it uh, with their templates ages ago. I'm sure those templates are long gone by this point. But uh, <laughs> again, the, more than Hope 10 so. years ago. But, uh, so. you know, there so there are services out there and they build these websites with the idea of with things like this, like pre-built pages of content on the Catholic faith. So if someone's coming and they, they come to your website, and they want to know what is, you know, what is baptism, you know, or that sort of stuff. It could, now, obviously, you could Google that and that's all over the internet already. But It makes the, it it doesn't hurt to have it on your parish website. You know what I mean? It gives it some, some, you know, I'm already there. It lets, it it gives me an opportunity to uh, reach people with this information who are already there. Uh, So uh, what does your website do? It, It, it provides information to your current parishioners. It's a place to post ministry events and programs it welcomes new visitors and it gives people an opportunity to do online giving, which is, you know, to set mm-hmm. up online giving or to, or to donate to the parish. Uh, that's really the big areas for a parish website. If you know, if you can obviously have
1: schedules schedules for, mm-hmm. you know, important events going on in the parish, whether it is your routine daily mass and confessions or uh, major celebrations, of course, Holy days, you know, right. People want to, you know, to, again, that's something where you need to be able to have, you know, schedule boom there it is everything people need to know you know coming up in the next you know week or two whatever it might be something real quick simple so people you know right because people are that's come about oh march ish time frame what's the number one call parishes get what time's the easter vigil what time is holy thursday what time is is
2: midnight mass on christmas what time is midnight mass Oh, and here's the reason because there's some priest who put midnight mass at 10 11, p.m. or
1: 10 p.m. Or earlier yeah
2: if you're yeah. celebrating mass at 10 p.m. psa here it is not midnight mass thank you
1: <laughs> it's it's mass with the midnight readings
2: <laughs> right,
0: right so uh yeah so you that's the, the the website so um there are a number of services that allow you to to do that but i when i, I we're kind of going long, and there's all so much here. We probably need to do another mm-hmm. episode on the stuff we're going <laughs> to skip, but I don't want to miss talking about church management software itself. Right. Like mm-hmm. the very particular packages. Um And some of the names, the big names in these are Paris soft, Gabriel soft from e-catholic. Um, uh, there's others as Parish well. Data
1: systems, PDS. Yeah.
0: So why, did, why don't what do you guys tell me about what it is you're familiar with, ones that you've known and seen and mm-hmm. what you're looking for when you're looking for a parish management software, a church management software? Father Joseph, why
2: don't you go first? So we I'm trying to sorry, I'm trying to find my notes here. Um, We use <laughs> Ministry Platform, which is part of ACS Technologies, Um, which their joke is ACS stands for Ask Church Secretary. Um, or at least that's what it used to mean before you had good. So we use ministry platform, which originally was more, more, um, towards Protestant denominations, but they've, um, we've been working with them on a lot of things, bringing it in. And I think their specialty is on a lot of demographic Mm things. Um, and so, I'm able to tithings in with the U.S. Mail Service um, address change database, um, which is really nice. Oh, yeah. To know when my addresses are on. They tithings in with like um, census stuff that I'm able to tithings in. So I'm able also to see not just the data that I have, but also in the idea of mission. Who am I missing? to see on certain census things of people who self-identified as Catholic versus the amount of data that I have and people I have to see who am I missing. Um, so a lot of theirs goes um, more on a mission focus than a, right. Um, an evangelization talk. We talk about maintenance versus mission. And so the thing that I've enjoyed about working with them is that they've been geared towards that. Um I think maybe them having a um Protestant beginnings made them a little more evangelical on things than um mm-hmm. we were as Catholics. So not not to sold us, but acknowledging truth. <laughs> yeah. So
0: and Father Corey, what is it that uh your diocese you're using over there?
1: So I I I've worked with several of these and most uh, mostly parish data systems originally PDS which um is, is was bought out by ECS Technologies. Um, but I I had one parish that had an old license of it where it was still in the DOS terminal. <laughs> this was even before they the Windows they, they hadn't even upgraded to the Windows version of it. And that was, you know, that was a long time ago. Um but our our Diocese is standard on Parasoft. And we use Parasoft family for all our, our family tracking. So uh this is things like And, of course, census data, you know, you know, parents and children and sacraments and stuff like that. Uh, But also does the offertory. It has an offertory module so that when they count the offertory, we can put it right in there and it gets credited to your envelope. Twenty two is the Smith family. It credits to their their records automatically. And then we also use the Parasoft accounting. Mm hmm. We're supposed to. And I'm. I'm. That's one of my jobs is moving my parish over to that and out of QuickBooks because I had a nice little rant with Don before how Intuit is evil, you know, spawn of Satan type level company. But um, it but um, no, it, it's it's just their pay schedule sucks. But it's uh, we're supposed to be using Parasoft. and the advantage because we're using Parasoft family once you do the offer you can then push the deposit into accounting. And they'll connect together. So then you don't have to then go manually enter in the information for the accounting side of it. And it will have the correct categories of these are offertory, these are building fund, these are you know uh, st- stipends and stole fees, these are this, you know, this is what the money has been given to. It just pushes it right in, and then you just accept it. Um, so that makes it really nice for doing the accounting side of it as well. Um, makes it just one step. Because of course, you know, especially in smaller parishes, a lot of times the bookkeeper is also the person who helps with the counting. They shouldn't, but that's sometimes it, what happens. It, happens. it yeah. happens. You know, you don't have much choice in the matter, You're- at least entering in the data from the, the count, if nothing else. So it makes it a lot easier on us. And then, of course, because our parish is standardized on this, or their diocese is standardized on this, um, the diocese can access that family data mm-hmm. as well. Um, that they can go in, and that's how they get, for example, the mailing list for our diocesan magazine, the Harvest. They pull it right out of that family software. So then they can they can when we change an address for a family member or family yeah member family of our parish, they'll they'll get the update right away as well. You know things like that. So it works really well for all of that.
0: It also provides good accountability and transparency uh, up. So yep. the diocese can be making sure that. Things that are happening in particular parishes are mm-hmm. the way they should be. Let's just to say yeah. it that way. Um, and exactly. because there have been plenty of t- scandals that uh, were related to finances in the church over the exactly. past couple of yeah. decades that, you know, just some mm-hmm. of it mismanagement, you know, or honest mistakes and some of it criminal. So,
2: yep. I think it's important to note that pretty much on all of these products, the, features that we mention are pretty much universally available across all of them. Some of them do those features better mm-hmm. than others. There's this reality in technology right now that if you're a smaller company, you're going to get bought out by a bigger company. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you talk, father Corey talked about these companies getting bought out. Technically there's like three major church management companies right. and they're buying the other ones out. Um, and so basically some of these you seem like you have a choice but you really don't have a choice because it's just the same product Mm -hmm. with a different label on it um Mm -hmm. once they buy each other out
0: right because like ministry brands is parasoft among other software. yeah (laughs) yep yep
1: and one one thing one thing that's nice is a lot of these software packages while many of them did start out as dedicated apps on the computer you know windows app windows program most of them now are cloud-based so you can access them remotely, then um, that brings with it its own special frustrations, because data entry and cloud-based software isn't always the best. Right, <laughs> but, right. it, but it does have the advantage of I can pull up my phone and hit a couple of buttons and pull up data from my parishes.: and I can look up a family up. member information
2: right off yeah. my phone.: Yeah, yeah. And it's ba- the backed up is key, that it's yep. backed up and that it saves automatically. Um, because sometimes people forgot to press the save button you were talking about just one side tangent here you're talking about parish management systems on dos fun backstory was that one of the earliest systems was called parish 2000 and it was um not because it was built in 2000 but because the priest who built it realized he needed to make it y2k compliant so he called it Parish Two Thousand, um, and no. it was made by um, Father Jerry Gomringer, who is in the Archdiocese of Omaha. Um, Boy, and that must ri- have been that must have been old though. And he originally wrote it for um, for D- DOS, um, but That's then funny. when I was a seminarian, I spent a summer with him, and he had written it for Access Ninety Seven. Oh, and but then. This was around the time that it was like 2013 that the doc changed to Docs X. So I spent an entire summer with him um, transcribing his code to meet with the update of um, the new Microsoft (laughs) Uh office. So I was um, Uh thrown headfirst into parish management.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So. This we've only scratched the surface of our outline. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more we could say, and it, I, I'm sure we'll come back to this because there's there's areas of of parish management software that we haven't even really touched, mm-hmm. like yeah. mass intentions and sacrament, you know, sacrament tracking that sort of thing. So uh, I want to come back to that, but that's a this is a good intro. Uh, like even electronic offertory, I got a lot to say about that about the benefits of giving electronically online over dropping money in the basket for both yourself and for your parish. And, uh, but that will save that for another day. But
1: one one last little little thing I just like this for all is kind of a appeal to parishioners. If you're good at data entry, you've got experience in bookkeeping or some other field like that. Talk to your pastor. He could, you know, even to have a volunteer come in for 10 hours a week or less, even five hours a week. Just to enter some of this information, like the offertory into the software right, is huge, right because that takes a load off the staff and the pastor that does that they could do other projects
0: as especially a lot of church secretaries in my experience around here tend to be older, and so mm-hmm. they're not as comfortable with data entry and computers necessarily. And you know you can really let them do what they do best, and and you take over the this this groundwork. I mean, this is uh, parishes are every parish. I don't care what what it is. Every parish Mm -hmm. lives on the goodwill of the volunteers who step forward to help do things. Parishes do not run just solely by people who are paid to do things. Just
2: can't work. Hmm. I think there's a thing about some of the software that we use that. Like you hit on mass intention tracking. They, the fact that I have software doing it for me frees up my time that I'm able to focus instead on of on books and paperwork, that I'm able to focus on people and relationships. Right. Um, yep. And so the amount of time pieces of software have saved me on doing that is just worth the cost that we pay for the oh, yeah. software. That's the key. <laughs> exactly.
0: That's that's what it's about. Um, yeah, that's what technology is supposed to do. It's supposed to help us, you know, take the groundwork off so we can concentrate on the things that are more important, that, are, that matter uh, in the grand scheme of things. And in this case, in parishes, it's about saving souls. Uh, so very good. All right, so we'll be coming back to this topic in the future. But until then, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create The Secrets of Technology, including Corey L., Janine M., Teresa C., Adam P., and Sandra C., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give, make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Technology and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So we had some headlines. Uh, The first headline is one that uh, Father Joseph U recommended, which is, this study from the Video Game History Foundation. And their study says that the headline is 87% missing, the disappearance of classic video games.
2: Father, what's this all about? Well, there's this reality that video games before like the last 10 years were on cartridges and on disc. Um, And those are mediums that degrade after time. Mm -hmm. And so my Sega cartridges that I have even though some of my Sega games I have, I've had for 30 years, they're not the same quality as they were when we first got them. And eventually they will die um, and they won't be able to be played. And so we go further back on that and you have some of these smaller independent producers of games. So it, um, Especially the Sega era was probably one of the biggest eras with Sega Genesis that these that it became cheap enough to produce cartridges that you had a lot of independent people making these. And so some of these smaller producers didn't make um as many copies. And so the games pretty much don't exist anymore. And that's a good amount of games.
0: So let let's step back a second, just talk about video games themselves. Like video mm-hmm. games, they're not just frivolous. They are works of art. It's like TV, Mini movies, bar. books, and they're, you know, they like we have libraries preserving TV shows and movies and books. There's This is the sense that we should be preserving this as part of our cultural history.
1: Yeah, it, it's well, it, it you get the, con, the combination of, you know, video games being seen as just a recreation thing, something you do as recreation, you do as fun. It's just play and companies that are very strict about their copyrights and their intellectual properties. And like, like uh father Joseph mentioned, you know, like that, not just you have the problem with the consoles or the, the, the cartridges themselves breaking down, but also the consoles you play on, you know, they have a limited shelf life that eventually capacitors and integrated chips and stuff like that start going bad. And, you know, and you start losing these games because you can't play them anymore once you lose your console. Now, with a caveat, my pick of the week as a, as a spoiler <laughs> is going to be about a new console that plays old video games. Right. But from the cartridge, but that's you you've got that and then you add on top of this now a lot of these new games, you know, Steam is wonderful. You know, Steam the Steam Valve Steam delivery service is wonderful. Except it's all digital, and the second they remove it, you can't get it back.
0: Right, or that you delete, you you cancel your Steam
1: account, or yeah. right, right. But you don't. You download that game, and it's there on your computer, and you can play it all you want. But if you your computer gets wiped out and they've removed that game from their library, you can't get it back. Um, there's a lot of games that have online copy protection. Well, those servers have gone down. That's a big thing with a lot of the um, first-person shooters, the the multi online multiplayer multi- you know, multiplayer online game uh, RPGs stuff like that.
2: The servers have gone down. You can't play those games anymore. They're dead. In in many cases, and Nintendo has been the biggest enemy of this. Mm-hmm. So the if you bought games on the Wii, you bought games on your Nintendo 3DS. All of those online connected things, you no longer have the right to download those games because they've cut off access to it. I paid for a product that I can't keep, and right before they shut them down, they required updates on your devices <laughs> that <prevented laughs> you can't play yep. them. So you're there are games that you are locked from playing, and to top it off, the um, to get in the solution of this article to things, the biggest enemy of emulation has been Nintendo and they've single handedly declared a war against it. Um, And honestly, I think it's kind of hurt them.
1: And there's, there's hypocrisy in Nintendo's part because they've got their virtual console, which they released first on the Wii. And now they have on the switch. And you can play all these Nintendo games and all these third-party games that have teamed up with them and everything, and you pay your, you know, Nintendo Online. and You can play them all for free. They're using open-source emulators that were developed, and even emulators that Nintendo themselves fought against. <laughs> so they're kind of hypocrites in this matter. In, in some but,
2: ca- in some cases, they're using ROMs that were burned by the open-source communities. So they're yes. so they're stealing the. Things that they were claiming to be illegal to turn around and sell them.
1: Yeah, because what people would, could do is take a cartridge and they could copy right. the game yeah. off of it. So yeah. that's what we mean by a ROM. It's a copy of the, the actual ROM on the cartridge what in if, a file that you can then play in an emulator.
0: So what the I just want to get to the what the uh, Video Game History Foundation is saying is, Across the eras, so like you said, like more than 10 years ago, but going back to the beginning of the video game era, nine and 10 games are gone. They're not available. You can't play them. They're the, either the equipment to play them is unavailable or the games themselves are, you know, lost uh, in some way. They're not in release. They, they exist somewhere, but they're not being sold, shall we say. They're not available uh, legally uh, under the current copyright law. And this is across the board, across every platform. Doesn't doesn't really matter, you know, which platform we're talking about. Now, in, under other circumstances, libraries and archives are allowed to preserve uh, and share other media types, books, films, audio, and digitally share them. A library can, you know, that's what uh, Hoopla is all about. It let's you know, we get eBooks from them. Uh, you know, they can, they can stream out things. Archives can stream things and they're not restricted to, you have to go into the physically to the building and play it on one device there and this is what they're fighting for is the is the interpretation of the copyright law to allow libraries to have the same sort of access the same sort of rights surrounding video games preserving them and letting people access them are this cultural heritage even under copyright so the copyright the copyright materials libraries have you know they don't lose the copyright, the owners don't lose the copyright to materials that libraries are sharing. Libraries have certain restrictions, but video games are somehow are like sectioned off and not allowed to have this. And so what they're lobbying for is to is to get the video games included alongside these other products, these other media types that we're allowed to share and preserve.
2: On copyright law, there's another um, area that gets into this of Every other medium, you have what's called educational fair use, that there's a small amount of a book or a piece of music that I can use in the context of education that I can copy and not be in violation of copyright in video games, zero allowance on that. And there's a large thing of if we as a country want to be educating the future graphic designers and developers the way you learn is by looking at the old stuff. And the way you get to the building blocks, right? If I want to look at how something works, an an Atari game is a much better beginning of learning how to do video games than studying the Xbox One games, right? And so... Something that's simpler. Something that's simpler, and so you get in the way of allowing people to do that, and we're shooting ourselves in the foot of education by not having the allowance of educational right. fair use.
1: And, and I want to comment on one thing Dom, Dom mentioned, is there's art to video game. Video game, especially in, in recent years, there's been this argument about, is, there, is video game creation an art? And there very much are levels of art, and some of it's non traditional art. I would say, if you look at some of the old video games, I mean, you're talking Atari, Original Nintendo, the Commodore 64, Apple II, that era, you had to pack every bit you could. I mean, it's as like you had no frivolous code if you wanted to make a good video game. And so you had to you had every little bit of data and you had to tweak and twist and fit this code. And for programmers to be able to read and learn from that is an art because nowadays we throw so much memory and so much disk storage and so much hard drive and so much processor. We throw everything at it now. But uh, still, a well written video game is tight. You know, the code is tight. That's just one way. And um, in addition, the music and the graphics of video games, some of them are just absolutely stunning. No, the Final dramatic. Fantasy series. Is, <laughs> yeah. Some of the, the Final Fantasy series has been known for a long time for its music. Music's beautiful. And of course you want to talk about music, know, I'm gonna I'm gonna put earworm just by one title, Super Mario Brothers.
0: Everybody
2: immediately The music of that might be like one of the key parts of the success of the game was exactly soundtrack. It is.
1: Koji Kondo, that's the name of the composer of the Mario, many of the Mario games. I mean, just wonderful composer. It's an art of the music, an art of the character design an art of the backgrounds, especially as graphics got better, where you could have more, maybe not even photorealistic, but still like the pixel, but it looks better. Yeah, so. S-
2: Sonic was better art than Mario. Yet Mario <laughs> yeah. Mario mm-hmm. was the better known one. So it speaks to the music.
0: So, uh. The, the bottom line uh, on this one is that uh, the, the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act has a rulemaking pr- process that comes up every so often. It's scheduled for 2024, and the hope <laughs> is that um, this will come up as part of that and we'll get some, some change, which would be nice. It would be nice to get access yes. to some of those, those old games. So our next headline is the question. Everyone watches TV with subtitles now. How'd that happen? Uh, <laughs> heads up if you watch most your TV with subtitles on. I have found myself to be doing
2: that. Um, I'm looking at you, Disney Plus.
0: <laughs> yes, mm. it's always on in Disney Plus. Uh, Britbox, I <laughs> always watch. Well, well that's <laughs> a different, <laughs> different story. <laughs> that's a different story. Yeah, Shetland is like, is basically a foreign language program. <laughs> but, uh, so they said it, there's, there's several reasons for that. One is that, um, the The way the TV um, speakers are set up, that they point down. I don't know anybody who uses. Uh, well, no, no, I'll change that. Yeah, some do. Uh, some people still use just the the speakers that
2: are built into the TV. So I guess that's that's a a, a reason. Um, I, I, I think, don't think that's true. Because even when I have my full surround sound on, yeah. I still have to have subtitles yeah. on. I so, think they're
1: mixing them differently these days. The well the. They dialogue. are and actually there's there's a video I saw recently where they showed how back in back in the old days, back when TV was still fairly new, movies were still the big thing, they would go to great tricks to hide these big monster microphones, you know, the big ones, you know, the big ones that are about the size of a dinner plate. And they do all kinds of tricks where it would be hiding behind a bouquet of flowers in front of the actors. Isn't that part, part of like singing in the rain? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's where it comes from. Yeah. But that that's true. And of course you had the big boom mics above them and everything. But now, because of small lapel mics and even smaller than that, they can hide them like underneath a tie. So each actor could be could be mic'd, but you can't see it. But the problem is then now they mix them in such a way that yeah, it is more natural. Because of course when you had the big dinner plate, uh uh, microphones. The actors had to talk very exaggeratedly <laughs> to be picked up. But <laughs> yeah. now they don't watch have an to. old movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now they don't have to. So that makes it because they're speaking more naturally. They're not being as clear and in cons- and crisp in their their words. Now, one thing I found interesting
0: was the most people who watch with subtitles are the younger people. Like the younger the audience, the more they do, and they think that is part of because social media. Pushes you know all the Instagram reels and TikTok videos all have uh, progr- uh, algorithmically generated subtitles and all that sort of stuff automatically on because people are watching videos without sound and all that sort of thing. People, young people, have become used to programmed maybe to to think mm-hmm. videos should have subtitles. And so they turn it on when they were just watching regular t v streaming t v movies and that sort of thing, which I think is fascinating how the technology has changed us in that sense.
2: I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing um actually, to be honest, instead of mindlessly watching a video, the fact that they're maybe reading and <laughs> the subtitles yeah. are written in proper grammar, maybe it's a good thing <laughs> next time
0: you're watching a show. Count how many times the, um, the screen, the notation scoffs comes up. I've noticed oh, yeah. now, Everybody's always <laughs> scoffing at things yeah. <laughs> in TV shows and movies.
1: Now, now, I do have to, do have to ask, though, that It's always been a long debate in translated movies, movies from other languages, especially anime, but other, you know, like other Japanese or other cultures, languages. Sub or dub? Subtitled or dub? So it would be interesting to see how that number has changed from yeah. dubbing to sub. So dubbing is dubbed over with English speakers instead of. I would prefer subtitled over
2: dubbed. Yeah, I think and I, I wonder too. if with,
1: with more people doing subtitles, I wonder if that started to change to more people going to the subtitles instead of the dub. So That's it depends. Interesting, It'd be interesting to see.
2: It kind of depends on the language, too. Like if I'm watching an Italian or a Spanish film. I'm going to want subtitled because there's some understanding of the language, but I'm wondering if someone's watching a Japanese film or Chinese film or something that they don't have um, an intricate knowledge of the language. Do they prefer dubbed over sub? One thing about dub,
0: about dubbing in Asian languages is because the cadences and and links are so (laughs) different from English. It can cause some, Awkward way, like formation yeah. of sentences and stuff. And it can sound kind of odd as they try to match the length. Like, because otherwise you have like this uh, something in English three words long and then the mouths on the screen keep going. Keep and moving. It,
2: <laughs> it kind of reminds me of when we tried to um, use old musical settings for the new translation of the mass. <laughs> oh, that <Exactly>. got painful. <laughs> she
0: warning them in. <laughs> So, uh, so folks,
2: think about that. Do, do
0: you do you subtitle? Do you dub? You know what do you what do you, what do you do? I'd love to hear. From I need you. to break
1: it to you, Dom. We're doing it more because we're getting old.
0: <laughs> I can't hear it. Turn it up. It doesn't go <laughs> up any <hell> louder. <laughs> I need bigger speakers. <laughs> so uh, our next one, this is um, pure speculation. This is uh, vaporware as until it comes out. But Toyota claimed that they've created a battery, a car battery that would have a 745-mile range with a 10-minute charge time. This is the Holy Grail, right? This is Mm -hmm. what, in fact, the article mocks the idea that everyone's going talking about this. We'll say, game changer, Holy Grail, this changes everything. But it really would because this would be almost better than gas because, you know, most vehicles do not – gas vehicles do not get 745 miles on a charge – or on a tank, sorry, the gas tank. vehicle. Um, although they could probably fill up in five minutes rather than 10, but ten's not that long. No, if you could have, and father, both of you live in fairly rural areas. So you, this really applies to you. If you could get an EV with this kind of range and charge time, would that change how you feel about the idea? Cause I know father, uh, father, uh, Corey, you are, you, you are a gas guzzler guy. You love the your, your <laughs> car, uh, would you, get a, would you get an electric if it had this kind of oh, range?
1: I I could see myself having an electric. Actually, I, I still lean more towards a hybrid, that if I got something with batteries, it would be a hybrid. Uh, just because there's still always the concern with electric vehicles of what do you do when you're stuck out in the middle of nowhere? An electric vehicle, you know, with a gas-burning engine, let's say I get in a blizzard and I get stuck, I can shut off that engine and then just restart it as I need to keep warm. With an electric vehicle, you're gonna it's gonna still keep using battery and eventually you'll run out of battery a lot faster than you will fuel. But no, something like this, I mean, I, I could see something like this being very beneficial because let's okay, let's say seven hundred and forty five mile range for a straight EV, but then let's say a hybrid for two hundred miles. That would be still be pretty nice. Yeah. You know, if I could do a lot of driving without having to use the, the gas engine in the hybrid would be pretty sweet. Um, I I still see the need for whether it's, of course, article also talks about hydrogen, you know, whether whether it's a hydrogen fuel cell or a gas burning engine or something like that. I could still see
2: the need for that in the extreme rural situations that I'm dealing with out here. I'm trying to see if they get into and it doesn't look like it into horsepower and things, because my main worry about this is we get snow and lots Mm -hmm. of it. and. Still, the difference between um, and it, even let's not compare cars, like if I have a Gator versus a golf cart, right, <laughs> I I would much rather have the Gator. Right. And that I'm still seeing that as a difference of engines. An electric powered engine is still running in a completely different way than a gas powered engine of torque and everything like that and the ability to get the amount of power that you get out of a combustion engine with electricity um I'm not convinced is there yet
0: that's an interesting that really hasn't been part of the argument uh, out there is the amount of torque the amount of power on demand you know you get raw speed you know tesla's get the, you know ridiculous speed mm-hmm. or whatever they call it but Ludicrous. Yeah. Ludicrous speed from Spaceballs. Uh, space but uh, <laughs> they uh, but they don't talk about the torque like, you know, if, when you're driving in, you know, muddy mm-hmm. or snowy
1: conditions,
0: you know, that sort of that well, sort of power.
1: I, I will I will say, this. of course, this is kind of apples to oranges, sort of. Um, there's a reason why all lo- diesel locomotives are diesel electric. They are not direct drive to the wheels. They use this very similar technologies that electric cars use now. Um, with the exception of, of course, an all-electric vehicle doesn't have an alternator to produce the energy; yeah. it just comes from a battery. So, as far as the issue of, you know, like a the Ford F one fifty Lightning, I think it could punch through just as much, if not more, snow than a regular Ford F one fifty. I think that's 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 very easily done. The question is, as it's doing it, if you got a three hundred mile battery in that Ford F one fifty Lightning, what is it actually going to be after you're punching through, right. uh, you know, six inches of snow at twenty below zero? Which I Pretty sure Nebraska can do, and I know Montana can definitely do. Yep. Yeah, you know, right. are you going to get hundred miles, or are you can get fifty miles
2: in, in that same day that it got twenty below zero? It's going to also be ninety degrees, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, the swing.
0: So, uh yeah, I, 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 you know, as someone who lives in a suburb of a big city, um, I, I'd be ready to go to an electric vehicle now if I, you know, the, given the amount of miles we drive you know in my family i i'd be okay with a with an ev as they are now a decent one anyway although they're very expensive still but uh but the idea of a 745 mile range on a sedan you know it just would take away all thought of range worry right yeah. that that'd yeah. just be gone like cuz how often do you ever drive that far in any trip you know mm-hmm. i mean for most of us
1: rarely Perfect conditions would be great for a road trip, 80, mi- 80 degrees and sunny and clear roads. Oh, yeah, you could go all day.
0: Yeah, yeah, literally 745 miles is is more than all day. What
2: they, <laughs> what they didn't tell you in this test is that they actually started in Colorado and they just went downhill the whole time, <laughs> the whole 745 miles. <laughs>
0: Yes. They
1: yes. they started on the continental divide of Colorado, you know, so they got that extra boost. And
0: they went they went to LA.
1: <laughs> they just coasted.
0: <laughs> all right, so the last headline I wanted to get in was uh, end of an era. Netflix's DVD service is ending. We talked about it before. Mm. But they uh, they're doing something for the the last holdouts. <laughs> if you kept that DVD prog- program all this time, if you keep getting discs in the mail, uh, you're going to get a gift from Netflix. They're going to send you ten, up to ten extra discs on September 29th that you get to keep. There was some question early on whether they would have to be returned or not, but no, they're going to send you ten discs off of your queue, your your list mm-hmm. um, at random. You're not going to get to choose them, I think, and uh, you get to keep those forever, unlike you know the rest of the ones that you probably already. Told them that you lost. That she's still uh, running around in your in your entertainment unit. Uh do you guys do you guys regret dropping your Netflix DVD program back in the day and not getting free discs? No.
1: Although the first time I watched Babylon 5 was via two discs at a time, finish watching a disc, return it, get the next disc of the series and keep going. Yep. But how many people, this would be a question for our discord. How many people actually realized Netflix still did DVD before they announced they were ending it? I did not
2: realize it was still around. I
1: didn't either.
0: Yeah. I, I, yeah, I thought that it was long gone. Yeah. They'd kept it going. I was a holdout. I did. I did hold out for a while after streaming came along. But yeah, I I gave in well,
1: eventually. Netflix streaming when it started, if you remember, was oh, pitiful. It was really bad. It was like all B movies and second tier TV
2: series and stuff like that and, it, but they built it up. And it, they built it and up it well. It looked like you were streaming something on Real Player. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. The quality was low. You know, and I would say the DVD service had most movies. Like if you if you mm-hmm. wanted to watch a movie it was the, probably there. It was rare that you come up with something that wasn't there. Whereas with Netflix now, like it doesn't have a yeah. lot
2: of outside movies. A lot of it's their own original programming now. The selection was definitely better when, before they mm-hmm. started... But remember, there is also this giant fight within streaming of right. I have rights to this, you have rights to this, and we're going to have all of our silos and we're going to create the same mess that we have with cable television <laughs> on the Internet.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, now we still have that. Right. Oh. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> well, and, and, I
1: mean, it was when the DVD service came out, it was revolutionary because, you know, your best bet was either, you know, before that you either had to buy the movie outright. yep So a lot of people did, of course. Or blockbuster, and hope that there was the one you wanted was in. <laughs> exactly, and with 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 Netflix, you you know you signed up for your one disc at a time, two discs at a time, and it was at a time. You send one back, you got another one. Yeah, your next one on your list, and so you can make your queue. And they would just go right down the list. And if the one you wanted, they didn't have. You know, if it was a popular movie, sometimes they would run out of a particular DVD. Well, as soon as it came back, you would get it. Stuff like that. For a
0: while, we had a, a warehouse, a, a Netflix warehouse in the, in the next town over from me. So I could I had to, like a three DVD program and I had a, I could watch a Netflix movie every night, like just uh, churn through my queue because I was nice. I had little kids. I wasn't going to the movies. So as soon as they were out on DVD, I'm putting them <laughs> on my queue and watching them. Uh, So,
2: yeah, I think just putting a memory to this of for those who didn't see the Netflix be launch and become that this wasn't like Sony launching something. This was a like entrepreneur who took a risk to do something that was laughed at by Blockbuster that. And so, yes, Netflix is this huge corporation now their yep. beginning humble endings beginnings were just kind of this like, Hey, let's send people DVDs in the mail. And that was, right. it was a big risk. That was a risk. Mm-hmm. And so when people
0: send them back, you know, that was like the, the, the big thing. And was it even legal to, to violate copyright? These are a lot of questions that early days, and they took the risk and they did it. And they, they ch- transformed the industry. They really did. They changed everything. So good on, good on them. And lucky for the, the, the diehards.
2: Yeah. So those are our All five of, of them. Up. All five of them. Yeah, all, they're all yeah. getting,
0: yeah, they're giving away 50 discs. Uh, so uh, let's move on to our
2: picks of the week.
0: And Father Joseph, you're up first. What is your pick this week?
2: Sega. Um, I have, and I, I love this, yeah. I have my USB Sega Genesis controller. And so. Oh, cool when I'm um, playing my fully legally obtained um, ROMs on my computer, my Sega games, side note, I do own the cartridges of the ROMs. Um, (laughs) I'm able to use the um, original buttons of the Sega, which is really nice, um, especially for the nostalgia and um, being able to do that. Um, It works With the Steam Deck, if I make some changes to the controller layout stuff on Steam Deck, so it's not perfect. With the PC, it works great. Um, And I have yet to get it work to work with archive.org on playing games Mm -hmm. off the console emulator on there, but I've been working on that, so update to come soon. I'll probably figure a way out. (laughs)
0: nice it's only 14 bucks it says uh yep works with ps3 pc mac steam the nintendo switch so yeah you get your choice of uses awesome yeah the game controllers they're a lot of fun i've got a uh, switch xbox style game controller that i'm going to test out uh that i'll have some more to talk about maybe it's a future pick of the week but uh, uh i'll let you all know about that eventually but uh, since we're talking games and old games and game controllers, Father Corey, what's your pick?
1: So my pick is something that was just announced from a company you might have heard of if you're familiar with old games, Atari. So Atari went through really rough era. You know, they they, they brought out the 2600, and they were the hottest thing until the Nintendo Entertainment sister System and the Sega, uh, original Sega came out, and that they lost a lot, and they became most basically a licensing company instead of an actual video game company. Well, last couple of years, they've been bringing back video games, and they announced the Atari 2600+. Plus. This is a console that's a li- supposedly a little bit smaller than the original 2600, looks just like it, has the switches on the top just like it, and a cartridge slot. And it can play the original 2600 and 7800 cartridges, not just new ones. But the original, I can play uh, E.T.
2: again. (laughs) Yes, the
1: classic E.T., the one that was buried and crushed in the in the 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 garbage dump, (laughs) the landfill. So it's a it is an emulation type system or, you know, or some kind of, you know, uh, FPGA or something like that, where it's not an original Atari 2600 inside, but it will play all the game or most of the games. Uh, It comes with a joystick that actually is the serial joystick oh, yes. the actual nine pin joystick that worked with the commodore 64 as well um it's got you can get that you can get the paddles with and then it, then the console itself comes with 10 games and if you get the paddles you get four more games and they're on like a cartridge where you actually use like little dip switches on the back to switch which game you want so i mean it's very <laughs> much like the old school setup wow um the cart the console itself is 130 dollars. The joysticks are are going to be twenty five dollars. The paddle is forty dollars, and then they've got a couple other games, Berserk and Mister Run and Jump, that you can also buy for thirty dollars each.
2: I'm glad does that HDMI S- connector. Yeah, it does. Hmm? So I'm glad that um I can get my Atari games in full 1080p because I'm gonna need yeah, it. Yeah, It is
1: HDMI plug. It's a
2: modern modern yeah. uh, output.
1: <laughs> um. But yeah, it uses the it uses the old school. So you can if you still have an old Atari joystick, you can use it on this. Wow. And like I said, if you've got the Commodore 64 like I do, uh, you could use this joystick on the Commodore 64. This, and it would is, work. this is
2: a step up from the Atari flashback. I do have the Atari flashback yep. that has them on like I. digital games um, and it has this cheap excuse for a wireless controller that. You have to be within five feet for to get the wire. Oh.
1: <laughs> yeah, at least at least the flashback I have has the the DB9. So this would work with the Atari flashback as well. These joysticks. So this is this is back to old school video gaming. Wow! And if you have that collection in your attic of the old Atari cartridges, it might be time to
2: drag them down and we'll get one of these. Pulling some yard sales. My parents will yep. actually get that box cleaned out of their basement now
1: <laughs> oh there you go
0: there we go i was gonna say though there's a, there's gonna be a number of gen xers buying these to show their kids the uh, the early days the primitive days of what video yep. games
1: were like <laughs> so this this is we were talking about you know not being able to play old video games well this you would again be able to play there is a compatibility list on here that not every 2600 game will work but it's there's only like a handful that just will not work. And there's a bunch that aren't tested. Mm. So, and that's, so that number might change as things go on, but the vast majority of 2,600 games can be played on this. So nice.
2: That is awesome. That man talk about a walk down memory lane. I'm looking down their website and they're, and they have, they've done a lot of games towards the steam store of like, mm-hmm. uh, they call Atari recharged that they're putting things yep. out in other avenues. So, Is this still the original owners of Atari, or has there been sales? Oh no, that's
1: changed around so many times. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was it was Warner Brothers. That's of all companies. It was Warner Brothers back when it Time Warner back when it was the Atari, or not Time Warner, but just Warner Brothers back when it was Time when it was Atari in their heyday. Right, right. But uh, and and by the way, I I did the Atari fiftieth anniversary on Steam a few oh, yeah. a right few months oh, yeah. ago, that a while and ago. that's fantastic.
2: Yeah. Very good. Cool. You just blew one hundred fifty dollars for me in a few <laughs>
0: months. <sighs> it's always a good pick of the week when you when the uh, co co-host panelists say, "Oh, you just spent my money." <laughs> yep, take my money. So, uh, take my money. <laughs> so here's my pick of the week. Um, I have talked before. I I've picked my keyboards before. I I love my clacky keyboards. Uh, but I no longer have one on my desk and Ugh. I've decided to go a little more conventional. I've gone with the Apple magic keyboard with touch ID and numeric keypad. I am old school. Oh, I yes. I want a numeric keypad on my, on my keyboard. I just well, love having those extra keys there uh, for, for typing numbers
2: to it's, bring things back together thing. for parish management systems. The number keypad is essential, is essential when you're yeah. entering contributions. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So the
0: things that I love about this though is in addition to having the keypad is it's uh wireless so it's Bluetooth um with your with your Mac so mm-hmm. you can you can use it wirelessly uh but the big thing is the touch ID button. I love mm. the touch ID button. So for all the same reasons I love Face ID on my phone uh you know or touch ID on my on my MacBook having a touch ID button Without it, so I don't have to type in my long secure password every time I unlock my computer or want to, you know, open up one password or all these other things that I'm doing all you know a hundred times a day. I just touch my finger on the Touch ID uh, and it's done. Uh, I love that. I also I wish they would sell the Touch ID as a separate thing, like uh, just a Touch Mm. ID button. So many people would buy it <laughs> because people want to have other kinds of keyboards than just the one Apple sells. And, and I might actually go for that if I I'd go back to another keyboard, if right. that were the case. Uh, but I do like this keyboard. Um, the the it's, it's quiet, it's low profile. The keys strike fairly well. It's, they're, they're much better key action than the old butterfly keyboards disaster not quite the old ADB mm-hmm. keyboard of the old days, the old Mac days. Those, <laughs> those sort of things are pretty awesome. Uh The big, you know, aircraft carrier keyboards. But uh, the, yeah. this is really nice. It, it even has the uh, function uh, key that has like the emoji key, which is really annoying because mm-hmm. it's right next to the delete key, and I'm constantly hitting it. I actually use a program called Carabiner to turn off that key. <laughs> it doesn't, oh. do, it doesn't oh. <laughs> do that anymore because it was. Explain, I was car- that, explain huh? Carabiner it's a system extension that gets pretty low level but what it, at its basic level it allows you to reprogram the function of any key on any keyboard or mouse or other input device to make it do other things
2: such so, such as getting a sega genesis controller to work with archive.org
0: quite possible really? uh, <laughs> that that might that might be the thing if you can figure out the keys the keys it's supposed to send the codes you you might be able to do that. I would definitely check that out. If not, I would also recommend checking out another app called Better Touch
1: Tool, which also does mm-hmm. similar things. So just. Uh, no, I, I I still have my the Magic Keyboard from my 2009 iMac, and I like that keyboard. It was great, but it did not have the number key, and that's why I don't use it yeah. because I the number I use the number key so much. Yeah, it
0: is. It is. It is great. It's it, it, the, the Apple makes you know apart from those. Horrible butterfly keyboards on the MacBooks for a few years. They make great desktop keyboards. They always have, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm I'm glad to have this one. I'm I'm glad to have it back. Um, I do miss the the clacky the feel of the physical mechanical keys. I do miss that a little bit, but um, I'm, it's nice to have this. And it's 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 pricey. I'll, I'll give you that. It, this is not a cheap keyboard, mainly because it has a computer in it for, to have that. Secure mm-hmm. enclave for the Touch ID. It's basically a small computer inside this keyboard. So
2: I was looking and I'm like, the, it tells me for two day shipping of it. That I'm gonna to have to pay money, and I'm like, I- I'm paying you 180 bucks. The least you can give me is free shipping, guys. Come on, oh, 180 bucks for Apple is cheap. That's pocket change. We're, we're letting you buy our keyboard. Come on, they're charged, yeah. they charge 180 bucks for a lens cloth, don't they?
0: <laughs> right, right.
2: <laughs> Pretty close.
0: All right, so those are our picks of the week, and that's it for us for this time. We would like to thank you for listening, and we'd love to hear what you think about anything we discussed today, parish management software or, you know, uh, video games, all that sort of thing, you can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash technology, the StarQuest Facebook page at facebook.com slash StarQuest Media. You can send an email to technology at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. We can also, uh, we, we, we actually field questions from folks. If people have tech issues, we we do not claim to be experts in all areas, but we'll do the best we can if you have a question. We'll we'll, mm-hmm. we'll share our knowledge anyway. So uh, check us out there. You can find links from our discussion and our picks of the week on our show notes at starquest.fm slash TEC223. Be sure to write a review of the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you can write reviews in any podcast directory and share the podcast with your friends. Help us grow our community, reach more listeners. Maybe share this episode with your pastor or someone who works in your parish that might be find the information we talked about useful. Until next time, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of technology. Thank you, Dom. Father Joseph Sun, thank you as well. Until next time. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Technology on StarQuest.